0: she's ready for an adventure. <laughs> so we're starting this new um, sermon series in Romans and uh, it is going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour because we're, con- we're going to cover this enormous book in, um, in 10 weeks, so over the next few months, which is... In a way, a ridiculously short amount of time to um, to study Romans. I was uh, I was leading a church day away for um, uh, Linfield Evangelical Free Church. Uh, some of you remember Stuart Holloway, who's come to preach here a couple of times. He's now uh, sort of take, coming in as, as their pastor. So they had a church day away yesterday, which was um, back in Ardingly, which is my old um, stamping ground. So I went popped into the church, see my name. Carved on the wall, make sure no one had scrubbed it off. So, um, so I was there, but I was talking to a, a, a friend, a lovely retired friend who used to, used to minister at Borney with me. And uh, he preaches once a month at uh, Linfield Evangelical Free Church. And he said he is currently preaching through. He started a series in Ephesians. And uh, he said, and, and I smiled because I thought this was a, a, of him. He said, oh, I'm five sermons in to the series on Ephesians. And I'm still in the first verse. So, uh, so he's, I think he's in his early 80s, so he's going to have to crack on if he wants to get through the book, especially at one a month. But uh, that's how thoroughly he's unpacking Ephesians. We're going to whistle-stop tour a bit through, um, through Romans, and, uh, which is why buying the book, I've, I've, I've put the... Um, uh, I've put the link to buy the book on the WhatsApp group, so, so do, buy the, you know, do buy the book. Uh, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read the passage in a few moments. I just want to set the scene first of all, but it's on page 1128. 1128. But first of all, just to get a picture of uh, who, wrote, who wrote this letter, how the church got there in the first place, and what the church consists of, because sometimes we read these letters... And we don't really think, well, well, who was actually reading them first time around? Uh, how did the letter get there? And uh, what was this bunch of people? We don't know who founded the church in Rome. It wasn't Paul. Lots of the letters that he writes are to churches that he has personally been involved in founding. But he's never been to Rome. He says it's his, his desire is to go to Rome, but he hasn't made it yet. He will get there eventually. Uh, so we don't know who carried the gospel to Rome. Probably someone from Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost who travels uh, on business or whatever and arrives in Rome and starts to share the gospel. So Paul hasn't had a hand in uh, birthing the church but he's heard of it and uh, his longing is to go and meet with them. He's heard stuff about them. He wants to write and encourage them. Uh, Probably the church in Rome at this time numbered perhaps 200 people perhaps 200 people are the church in Rome, meeting in a number of smaller groups because they're meeting in people's homes. So probably groups much like we are this morning, maybe 15 or 20 people meeting in different homes. And if you just flip through to the last chapter, chapter 16 of Romans, it's entitled Personal Greetings and Paul gives more personal greetings at the end of Romans than he does in all his other letters put together. Uh, there are twenty-seven people that he mentions by name that he wants uh, uh, to be greeted, and it just gives you a snapshot of the fact that that the church is it's, as we've been thinking over the last few weeks. It's a community of people who are committed to each other and devoted to each other and in relationship with each other, and Paul. Paul loves them. These are people that he loves and people that he is committed to. And when you go through the names and you sort of start to look at them in a bit more detail, you see the, what a melting pot the church is and how all sorts of different people are grouped together. So there are, some of the names are Greek, some of the names are Latin, some of the names are Jewish. So there's a whole mix of nationalities. Some of the people involved are wealthy Uh, Because uh, if you're going to meet in someone's home and you've got a big enough home to get 15 or 20 people into, uh, you're going to be quite wealthy. But some of the names are probably the names of slaves. So you've got, uh, you know, socially, you've got a mix of of rich people and poor people. You've got a mix of nationalities and you've got a mix of different experiences because you've got uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And for a time... Uh, the Jews were expelled from Rome. So for a time, the church in Rome was just made up of Gentile Christians. And then AD 54, the Jews are allowed to return. And so now you've got Jewish Christians coming back to try and integrate into a church that is largely Gentile. And Jewish Christians, well, their background is, well, you know, the law is is very important to them and food laws are very important to them. And circumcision is still very important to them and they're coming into a church which is a Gentile church and the Gentiles well they can't be bothered with with any of that so you've got this whole mix of people coming together in the church who essentially have nothing in common other than the Lord Jesus and uh, one of the reasons Paul writes the letter as we see as we unpack it is and as we've been thinking a bit about over these last few weeks how do you live together in harmony when you're a mixture of all of those different groups of people, you know, rich and poor, slaves, uh, different nationalities and Christians who, you know, their, their sort of view of well, how to do Christian faith is different. And, um, you know, just, you know, thinking around the room this morning, our experience of, of Christianity is different. If we were to sort of write down all the things that are really important to us in the way that we follow Christ... Uh, We'd come up with all sorts of different lists and well this is really, you know, I love singing traditional hymns or I love singing modern songs and there's a whole, how how do we live together? And that's one of the things that Paul will address in this letter. How did the letter get to Rome in the first place? Well possibly there's a hint in the first verse of chapter 16 where Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. A servant of the church in Cancrea, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. So the suggestion of the scholars is Phoebe is the lady who hand delivers the letter to the church in Rome. So Ccrea is just round the corner from Corinth, and scholars think that Paul was in Corinth when he wrote the letter to Rome. So Paul has written the letter on a scroll and given it to Phoebe and asked her to deliver it to Rome. So possibly Phoebe is a wealthy uh, businesswoman and so her reason for travelling to Rome is on business. And so you can imagine the church in Rome uh, meeting in a home, a group much like ourselves, perhaps meeting in an evening, perhaps meeting in uh, secret because uh, they're a very radical group. In Rome and a very disruptive group in Rome and to the Roman authorities and they're meeting uh, uh, in a room lit with um, oil lamps and then this lady Phoebe arrives with a letter that she has brought from the Apostle Paul. So you can imagine the excitement in the church uh, as uh, she gets out this scroll and begins uh, to read it. And uh, that's why Paul commends her to them. So that's just a tiny bit of background about uh, how the church came to be in Rome and uh, what it, the kind of people that it was made up of and how the letter arrived in all likelihood. And so Phoebe unrolls the scroll and begins to read. And uh, this morning I'm just going to read verses Uh, 1 to 7, and then um, 14 to 17, and then we'll unpack little bits of it. So Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you, From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 I am bound both to Greeks and non Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let me just pop this um, slide up. So that's our theme for this morning. Paul is confident in the gospel. And how can we be confident in the gospel in our own age and in our own generation? That's what we're going to unpack this morning. Paul begins this letter... Um, he, he begins his, his different letters in, in different ways and the way in which he introduces himself and describes himself. And the way in which he introduces himself to the Romans is shocking. It's deeply shocking. And uh, they would have sat up and thought, well, why? Because if you are a, uh, if you're an inhabitant of, of Rome, uh, you're either free or you're a slave. And about about a third of the population of Rome uh, were slaves. And uh, when we think about slaves, our understanding of slavery is, is very much colored by uh, you know, African slavery, which was you know, horrific and, uh, and, and that kind of in the in the ancient world, slavery was a much more, you know, it was a much more common thing, and uh, it wasn't always the, the kind of the horror, horrific slavery that we have in mind. It was just a way of making things work in an age and in a society where you have no electricity, you have no gas, you have no oil. So how does stuff work? Well, the only you know, source of energy is human energy. So if you're a wealthy person and you want to run your house, uh, you use people. And that's the way the world works. If you are the slave of a good owner, you're actually in a very good position. In fact, if you are... The slave of a good owner, you're in a better position than someone who's free but poor. So slavery is, uh, when we have this, this image of, of servanthood and slavery, it's not the, um, the horror that we associate with that word. It's a very common thing. But if you're a slave, the one thing you want to do is be free. And if you're not a slave, the one thing you don't want to be is a slave because if you're you know being a slave is not a good thing so if you're someone who's free you don't want to be a slave and if you are a slave the one thing you hope for is that one day you might be free Paul begins Paul a slave slave of Jesus Christ it's translated servant but the word is doulos it's slave Paul a slave of Jesus Christ you kind of think well how can this be good news How can this be good news if you're introducing yourself as, you know, the great, you know, the one that we've heard the reputation of, the one who is the great apostle, the one who's planted all these churches through, um, you know, through Asia, uh, the one who's, you know, often in in prison. How how is this good news to introduce yourself as a slave? Uh, You know, we don't want to be slaves if we're free. We want to stay free. And if we're reading this letter as a slave, the one thing we're hoping for in life is to one day not be a slave. How can being a slave be a good thing? Well he says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. Which introduces really the beginning of, of the gospel and the beginning of understanding the gospel that actually freedom, true freedom, comes from slavery. That's the the way in which the gospel um, turns everything upside down. That's what the gospel does. It upends everything. Or, correctly, actually, the gospel puts everything the right way up. The gospel puts everything the right way up. Sin has upended the world. The gospel turns everything the right way up. And so we think, well, actually, I don't want to be a slave. I want to be free. The gospel says, well, if you want to be free, you need to become a slave. Um, Jesus says in uh, in Matthew's gospel, I'm going to read from Luke's gospel, Uh, Luke chapter 9 verse 23, Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very selves? True freedom comes from being a slave Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think, well, how does that just seem counterintuitive? How do you find freedom in slavery? Well, Jesus says, I've come to bring life and life in all its fullness. So you are surrendering your life as a Christian when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're surrendering your life, becoming a servant of the one who said, I've come to give you life in all its fullness. There is no other slave master that delivers that. And the reality is, if we're not a slave to Jesus Christ, we will be a slave to something else. We'll be a slave to ambition. We'll be a slave to uh, what people think of us. We'll be a slave to wealth. We'll be we'll be a slave to something. We will worship something. We're either a slave to something that cannot deliver freedom, or we're a slave to Jesus Christ, who can. That's the gospel. So that's how Paul introduces himself. And it's, until you understand it, it's shocking. And the Christians sitting around in this little home would have been shocked. But then as they, as they understand the gospel and they understand what Jesus has given them, then they, they're like, no, this is right. This, is, this should be our aspiration. I want to be a slave of Jesus Christ because therein lies freedom. Called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, there was already um, believing in the gospel in the first century and proclaiming a gospel in the first century is a very dangerous thing to do. You're likely to lose your life because, uh, because um, when the gospel uh, bursts into the world, proclaiming a son of God and proclaiming a path to peace... Well, there's already a gospel and there's already a son of God and there's already a path to peace because the Emperor Augustus uh, is the self-proclaimed son of God. It's on the coinage. The Emperor Augustus says, I am the son of God. And there's a gospel proclaimed in the Roman world. And the gospel is that the Emperor Augustus has brought peace. Pax Romana. If you live in the Roman Empire, if you live under the protection of the Empire, you live in peace. That's what the Empire guarantees you. That's what it delivers. So the Emperor Augustus is the son of God who brings peace to the world. And that's the gospel message. And then Christians pop up and say, well, no, actually. We've got a gospel to proclaim about the real son of God who truly delivers peace. So if you start talking about the gospel, you are likely to lose your life. Uh, so, we shouldn't be uh, worried about the fact that in our day and in our culture, uh, more and more proclaiming a gospel that threatens uh, and usurps the, the, the powers that be and the powers around us, the powers of our culture that say, No, do this and you will find freedom, do this and you will find peace. We shouldn't be too worried that it gets us into trouble. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Paul talks a lot about the gospel. What is the gospel? Often, our understanding of the gospel is uh, that um, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if we put our trust in him, our sins will be forgiven and we will have eternal life. Is that the gospel? You're looking worried. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking, hang on, if we suddenly got an apostate behind the pulpit. Yes, it is the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. It is the gospel, but there's more to the gospel than personal salvation. And when we limit the gospel, just to personal salvation, we've missed something. If you look at um, verse 15 you will read, Paul says, that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Now, who's this letter being delivered to? It's been delivered to the church. It's being read to the church. It's being read to people who understand personal salvation. They're in the church because they've understood that Jesus died for them on the cross. And uh, Jesus paid a penalty for them that they couldn't pay for themselves. So I'll unpack this in a, in a, in a, few, min- yeah, in a few minutes. Uh, they understand that, that, but Paul says, no, I've, I want to, I'm eager to come so I can preach the gospel to you. Preach the gospel to you who already understand the gospel. What is he talking about? Well, as we will see as we unpack this letter over the coming weeks, the gospel is about reconciliation with God. It is about the fact that Jesus died on the cross, died in our place so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could come in repentance and ask for forgiveness. It is about reconciliation with God, but it's also about reconciliation with one another. That's what Paul will address in this letter. We've already reflected that the church is made up of people who don't have a lot in common, people who normally would not associate with one another. So the power of the gospel is not just that we're reconciled to God, but in doing so, we, we find a way of being reconciled to one another. And in the Roman world, this would have been... It would have been shocking for this bunch of people to have been meeting together. Uh, I've, I remember reading a few years ago um, a letter written to the Countess of Huntingdon. Our little church belongs to the denomination, the Countess of Huntingdon's Connection. And in, in her day, in the 18th century... You had your station in life and you stuck to your station in life. If you were rich, you associated with people who were rich. That was your station in life. And if people were poor, that was their... And there's this lovely letter written by, I think it's by a a duchess of somewhere. And uh, she writes to the countess because the countess of Huntingdon loved Jesus and she wanted to tell people about Jesus. So she invited into her home people off the street because she wanted to tell them about Jesus. And this duchess writes this very strong letter to her just you know, chastising her and saying, what are you doing? You are bringing, you're bringing your class into disrepute because you're inviting all these horrible people in off the streets. This is, this is going to destroy society if you carry on like this. But that's what the gospel does. It doesn't just buy us a ticket to heaven. It starts to change society. It starts to change our community. We were thinking about this over the last few weeks, weren't we? We were thinking about, well, how do we, we what does it look like To be devoted to each other in love. What does it look like for a church to genuinely be a community of people who are devoted to each other in love? That little vignette from Acts chapter 2 of how they met together and how they had everything in common. How do you achieve that? That's the power of the gospel. But it's even more than that, as Paul will go on to describe in chapter 8 when we get there. Uh, Uh, God's, the gospel is that the whole of creation will be restored. The whole of creation. The gospel is not that we get a ticket to heaven and off we go. The gospel is God wants to restore everything that was lost in the fall. And the whole of creation is caught up in that. And Paul will write in chapter 8 about how creation is subject to frustration, how Creation is subject to decay, which is why I don't, you know, and I, I don't worry about um, global warming, and I don't worry about, uh, you know, all these, you know, headlines. And if you know, if we don't do this, you know, if, if we don't do this, then it's, it's going to be. The creation is subject to frustration. The Bible promises us that. Um, You know, there'll be seed time and harvest year in, year out until God has worked his purpose out. So I do try and look after the world and I try and recycle everything and we collect our crisp packets from Connects and I take them to the co-op in in Cookfield and put them in the little box because I want to try and look after the world. But not because I'm worried this is all we've got and one day it's going to be gone. It is going to be gone one day because God's plan is the restoration of creation. So the gospel is about personal salvation It's about our reconciliation with the Father, with God. But it's more than that. It's about the transformation of society. And one day it will be about the restoration of creation. Uh, Gosh, we are still in verse one, aren't we? (laughs) Never mind. a uh, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We're thinking about how can we be confident in the gospel. One of the reasons we can be confident in the gospel is because it's ancient. It's not a novelty. It's not a new thing. It's not a new philosophy. It's ancient. It was promised uh, hundreds of years ago. I I don't know if you ever watch... Um, uh, if you ever watch Antiques Roadshow, occasionally i watch the Antiques Roadshow and and sometimes you get someone uh, rock up on Antiques Roadshow with what they think is uh you know, um like a you know Ming Dynasty vase. Uh, and they turn up with this, you know, you know, my you know, my you know great great grandfather came back from China with this vase, and you know we think it's it's Ming Dynasty, and you can see in their eyes they're hoping that the expert is going to tell them it's worth a fortune, and then the expert looks at it and turns it over and says no, it's a fake. It's worth about fifty quid if you're lucky. And um, the gospel is it's ancient. This is the real thing. This is this is not a novelty. This is not a fake. It's you know it's it's ancient. It was promised for hundreds of years and. You know, when you read the Old Testament prophets, God is promising for hundreds of years that the good news of Jesus is going to come. Let me just read these, just a couple of verses from Isaiah 53, this passage which is, which is so famous, a passage which our, uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters are uh, discouraged from reading too much because it would point them to the Messiah who has come. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. This is written 400, of y- 400 years before Jesus is even Born, it's the the promise of God revealed in Jesus. His son, who as to his human nature, was a descendant of David. David, the nearest the Old Testament, came to a Messiah. The greatest king of the Old Testament, who despite all his weakness and frailty and sin, was described as a man after God's own heart. And when we think of David, what do we Think of We think of his beginnings as a shepherd. We think of him defeating Goliath. We think of David being the one who rescued his people from oppression and captivity. And Jesus is the one who is a descendant who comes in that line, who has rescued us from a great enemy, who has overcome a great enemy. Jesus is the one who overcomes sin. And death, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the son of God. And by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Why why can we be confident in the gospel? We can be confident in the gospel because it's ancient. Because it was promised from the beginning of time. Because for hundreds of years, God was preparing his people for the day when the Messiah would come, the saviour. Would come. Jesus doesn't suddenly spring out of nowhere. He's the fulfillment of hundreds of years of promise and prophecy. How can we be confident in the gospel? Because of the resurrection, the resurrection as historical fact for which there is abundant evidence. Uh, The church exploded into life because of the resurrection, because Jesus defeated death. And if Jesus has defeated his death, Well, the hope of the gospel is he defeats our death also. Paul writes in uh, his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, and he reminds the Christians in Ephesus of of who they were before they knew Christ. And then he writes of what Christ has won for them in chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. That was your situation. That was your circumstance. Think a bit more about this in a moment when we come on to, um, oh gosh, uh, just looking at the clock. There we go. Never mind. When we come on to righteousness. But you were dead. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. There was no life about you in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of, of the air, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature like the rest we were by nature, objects of wrath. It's very bleak paints a very hopeless picture of what we were before we knew Christ. But then the good news, uh, the wonderful uh, biblical but, uh, of many biblical buts. But, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus defeated his own death. And that means we can be absolutely confident that Jesus will defeat Our death when we trust in him. The resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the confidence that we have. The certainty that we have. That's why this little group of Christians meeting in in Rome. In a city that had it all. A city that could offer you anything. A city that was rich. And this little community of saying, yeah, but we have something better. We have something better. We have the Lord Jesus who has defeated death. Through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Uh, Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's that reminder again that the only reason we're here is because we're loved by God. The only reason Jesus came into the world in the first place was because we are loved by God. The only reason God has mercy on us is because he loves us. He loves us and he can't not love us. What a wonderful introduction to a letter so rich in hope and certainty, but we're not finished yet. Verse 14, I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. Uh, he's saying, he's the, "The word he's saying, I'm in debt. I am in debt. I'm in debt. Why is he in debt to both Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish? Um, if 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 I if I were to if I were to lend you a, a thousand pounds, if I were to lend you a thousand pounds, then you would be in debt to me for a thousand pounds, and until you'd repaid the thousand pounds, you would remain in." Debt. That's one way of being in debt. There's another way of being in debt. If someone gave me a thousand pounds and told me to give that thousand pounds to you, I would be in debt to you until I had delivered the thousand pounds. If someone gives me a thousand pounds and says, "I want you to give this thousand pounds to someone else," I'm in. Mean, it's your thousand pounds, and I'm in debt to you until I deliver it. But that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, "I have received." This gospel. I've received this good news. And I am in debt to you until I deliver it. Uh, you know, we were just thinking a few moments ago about all the all the people who do not yet know Jesus Christ that we are in contact with through the activity of the church who come to our breakout groups and mums and toddlers and all the connect and all the other things. We are in debt to them because we have received this gospel and we have to discharge this debt that's what the church is for we we owe we owe the gospel to people who haven't heard it and that's why we expend so much time and energy trying to share the gospel because we're in debt and god wants us to deliver the good news that he's given to us. And that's why Paul says, I'm bound, I'm in debt to Greeks and non greeks to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. He he knows he's been given, you know, not just a thousand pounds, he's been given this priceless gift and he's in debt until he can deliver it. That's why he devotes his entire life to this purpose. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I said a few moments ago to, you know, there's already a gospel in town. The Emperor Augustus is proclaiming his gospel. And to stand up and say, no, I've got another one, is going to get you into trouble. And you might think, well, no, I I should just keep this private. I should just keep this to myself. Uh, uh, But no, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm going to proclaim it. Because it's the power of God... For the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, this is where I'm going to um, end, um, which is getting your hopes up uh, that I might actually end. So it's always a terrible thing for a preacher to say because often you think, yeah, and then you go on for another 15 minutes. No, literally, I'm going to land on this. I'm going to land on this. Don't be, don't be hopeless. Uh, land on this thing of, of, of righteousness because this this is the glory. This, this is the heart of the gospel. In all the ways that the gospel plays itself out in reconciliation, th- this is the thing. God has a gift to give to us. And that gift is his righteousness. It is his righteousness holiness it is his it is his possession and through his son Jesus Christ he shares that gift with us it's his gift we don't have it and by faith by believing in Jesus he gives it to us if you do not have righteousness you will not have eternal life Because eternal life is about being united with the God who created us. And the God who created us is righteousness and he cannot live in union with unrighteousness. It's like oil and water. You cannot put the two things together. He has his righteousness and in his love he gives that righteousness to us. Uh, In the... Revelation chapter seven, John's beautiful um, revelation and he's uh, given this vision of, of the future and what God is doing and there's this lovely uh, part where he sees a multitude, a great multitude that no one can count of all those who are, who are saved and in verse 10 of chapter seven, he says, salvation belongs to our God. It belongs to our God, it's his, it's his possession. But because he loves us, he shares it with us. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Our God has authority. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How does God give us this gift of righteousness? Well, he gives us this gift of righteousness through the death of his son on the cross. Understanding this gift of righteousness, I think, is the hardest thing for Christians to understand. And so many of us as Christians are very poor at understanding this righteousness. Because we think we bring something to the party. We think we bring, you know, we bring some goodness. We bring some righteousness of our own and then God adds to it. So we're, we're a little bit pleased with ourselves as we come. Because we think we're not all bad. We have, we have some righteousness to bring to the party hope no, we don't. That's why Paul says, you were dead. If you're dead, you're dead. If you're dead, you can't bring yourself back to life. You know, a dead corpse cannot resuscitate itself. Nothing. Jesus says, he made us alive. He made us alive with Christ. It's like if I hold this if I hold the bible I've got the bible in my right hand I'm saying this because people are listening they can't see so I'm not being stupid I've got the bible in my right hand this is god's righteousness my left hand is empty this is me it's empty god has this gift and in christ he gives it to me by faith what did i what've i done i've done nothing other and recognise what Jesus has done for me on the cross. That's why this gospel is so glorious. That's why being a slave of Christ is so liberating because in becoming a slave of Christ and surrendering to Christ, I get what I don't deserve. I get all of his righteousness when I had nothing. And we find this so hard um, to understand. Let me just read you uh, just a little bit. This is from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, possibly the greatest apologist of the 20th century, wrote all these amazing books. If you've ever read um, his wonderful book, uh, Mere Christianity, which was very instrumental in my own coming to faith. It was based on a series of radio broadcasts that he gave during the Second World War on the BBC Home Service, uh, as it was then. And uh, wonderful apologist for the Christian faith. He finally understood God's righteousness in 1951, after he'd written most of his books, just 12 years before he died, after he'd spent many years telling people and explaining to people about the righteousness of God, uh, he finally understood it. And uh, he writes some letters to some friends explaining the difference this has made to him. And he writes about how the fact he, he kind of understood it in his head, but he hadn't got it in his heart And he has this wonderful moment of revelation where he suddenly understands, I'm forgiven. I am forgiven. Uh, He writes um, to a a lady called Mary Shelburne in 1958. So this is five years before he died. And uh, seven years after he'd had this transformation in his life. He said, I'd been a Christian for many years before I really believed in the forgiveness of sins. Or more strictly, before my theoretical belief became a reality to me. And then he writes another letter to her in 1959 because she's made a comment about the difficulty of feeling that we're not worthy to be forgiven. How many of you this morning or listening think, Well, I'm, I'm not worthy? I was with somebody yesterday who was like, I'm not, I don't feel worthy to be forgiven. And uh, C.S. Lewis replied, he said, you surely don't mean feeling that you are not worthy to be forgiven. For of course we aren't. Forgiveness by its nature is for the unworthy. You mean feeling that we are not forgiven. I have known that. I believe theoretically in the divine forgiveness for years before it really came home to me. It is a wonderful moment when it does. That's the righteousness that uh, Paul is, is talking about and the righteousness that he will, you know, continue to unpack in the rest of this letter. But right at the beginning, right at the start, let's understand the glory of the gospel, the glory of what Jesus has done on the cross, that this gospel is good news. It's the power to change the world. And that's why we can be confident and that's why we should never be ashamed of the gospel We should never be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. That's why we're here. That's why we do all the things that we do because we have a glorious gospel. Let's let's pray for a moment. And uh, I want to pray that we would... We would understand deep in our hearts the nature of righteousness, the righteousness that God gives to us. It is His, it's His possession. And in His love, He gives it to us. And we will never earn it, we will never deserve it. There'll never be a moment when we feel like we've done enough. That isn't gospel, that's slavery to something that can never deliver. But through Jesus, God gives us as a gift his righteousness. He makes us right with him. And all we have to do is come in faith. Father, I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would would give us the certainty of knowing the truth, Not just in our heads, but in our hearts. Lord, I pray for any one of us this morning who may be sitting and thinking, well, I just don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy of God's love. Why would he love someone like me? To understand that that's the whole point of the gospel. That we're not worthy. No one is. And that's why the Lord Jesus came. So, Father, may we receive your mercy. And if we haven't yet responded to you in faith, even in these moments, may we say to you, Jesus, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God who died for me that I might be cleansed, that I might be set free. I choose to be your slave. Because therein lies freedom and fullness of life. Holy Spirit, minister your grace to us this morning. And continue to reveal yourself to us in the days to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.